Welcome to Speaking of Business, conversations with Canadian innovators, entrepreneurs, and business leaders. I'm Goldie Hyder, President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Today, I'm speaking with John Manley, Canada's former industry minister, finance minister, minister of foreign affairs, and deputy prime minister. John recently stepped down after nine years in the job I now hold as head of the Business Council. As you'll hear, John's commitment to his family, career, and public service in both politics and business is truly remarkable. Here's our conversation. I hope you'll enjoy. John, thanks so much for joining me. I'm happy to be here. How are you? I couldn't be better because the burden of responsibility has been lifted from my shoulders and put on yours. Well, well, thank you, I think. <laughs> you know, when I took the position at the Business Council, I knew I had big shoes to fill. But you know what surprised me the most? You're a celebrity. I've been with you in the last 24 hours as we traveled around and pilot stops and says, thank you for your public service. Walking into this building here, a guy screams out, you don't look like the guy who's retiring. <laughs> How does that feel after all these years? Well, I've always thought as long as they wave with five fingers, it's not so bad. <laughs> and so uh, w what I would say is anyone that says public service is a thankless task is wrong. Uh, I've had lots of thanks and lots of approbation from people. Now, during an election campaign, when your name is on the ballot, different rules apply. And people will say anything to you, and some of it can be quite hurtful, I'd say. But the rest of the time, I've found that Canadians have been very grateful for what they perceive to be uh, a difficult job. Do you think our politics has changed from the time that you entered it and where we are now? Well, there's different pressures for sure. I think the phenomenon of social media, which I didn't have to deal with, has changed the dimensions quite a bit. In my time, the more recent phenomenon was 24-7 news cycle. And that in itself changed uh, the way the political game was played. So you no longer had to gear up for the deadlines that newspapers and uh, electronic media had later in the afternoon. You, you were always on all the time. Uh, but I think social media is a whole other dimension. But the other thing, Goldie, that I think has changed a little bit is uh, I and and uh, one always worries about becoming a curmudgeon and as one ages, but it just seems to me that the adversarial nature has become a lot more personal and a lot nastier. Uh, I had friends, I still have friends that were political opponents. They weren't my enemies. I didn't hate them. We had a different point of view on some things, um, and. Truthfully, in opposition, I was there for five years, you oppose because that's your responsibility. But in fact, you probably agree with, I don't know, 75% of what a government is doing because there's not that wide a margin of difference over many things. And now I'm, I get the sense that uh, it's not just opposition in order to draw out the weaknesses or explain other points of view. It's a bitter personal rivalry in which uh, it's all politics all the time. I think that's really regrettable. Uh, I, I guess I preferred the notion that we were all in this to try to get the best outcomes for Canadians. And it didn't really matter what 
you know, color tie you were wearing. Would you run today, knowing what you know? Well, would I run today? If I were 38 years old again, I'd, I'd, it'd be a different answer than it would be Let's today. Let's say you are 38 years old. Would you run? You know, well, I talked, I've talked about it with my, my kids, of course, and I, you know, I wouldn't encourage them to run. Um, Isn't that sad? It is, um, because I, I do believe in public service. I remember being out in the car with my oldest daughter, so she was nine, and we're out driving around. She says, um, she says, do, do, you, do you like your new job? I said, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I'm getting to do really interesting things. And, and she said, uh, you, seem, you work more than you did in your old job. I said, yeah, probably I do. I'm, you, know, it's, you know, it's long hours. And, you know, with, over the Christmas period that year, we had votes that went well into the night. She said, do you get paid more than in your old job? I said, well, actually, no, I get paid less. Then there's a long pause, and she says, why did you do this? <laughs> there's a sense. learning opportunity, <laughs> teaching opportunity. You know, I mean, I lived in as part of a government, which in some ways was charmed. You know, I mean, <laughs> I went into government um, out of opposition uh, with Mr. Kretschian in 1993, he made me Minister of Industry. I held the job seven years. Um, if you go over to industry, what was Industry Canada to the Innovation, Science, and Economic Development Ministry and look at the pictures on the wall, there's, there's a lot of them. There's all those various ministries. And my view is they should be sized according to how long you were there because mine would be basically – poster size, and a lot of the others would be postage stamps, because <laughs> I was there a long time. Seven years, I think, is the longest since World War II that anyone's been there. But in those seven years, I think the prime minister called me five times. I ran my department. I made decisions. Some of them were, some of them were difficult. Some of them were controversial. So, uh, you know, I had, I had free reign. I don't think that happens anymore. Let's, let's talk more about leadership. It's certainly a passion of mine to learn from others. What have you learned from your political leaders that you've had, but also the fact that you've now had a line of sight into Canada's business leaders for the last nine years? Well, they come in all shapes and sizes, of course. And usually business leaders often don't make very good political leaders. Uh, because they don't yeah. – well, because businesses – I know there's a great anecdote about George Shultz, who was, you know, um, renowned as being both the Secretary of State and the Secretary of the Treasury in the United States. So finance minister and foreign affairs minister, like me, right? Yeah. But he also ran a university, and he also ran a major corporation, Bechtel Corporation. And he was asked one time, which was the hardest? He said, oh, it's much harder to run a corporation. And the interviewer said, well, why is that? And he said, well, because unlike government or universities, in a corporation, when you tell people to do something, they actually do it. So you're responsible for it. <laughs> but it gives uh -oh. you an idea of, this, of the structure. I mean, in, a, in, a, in the corporate structure, if you're the boss, you make the decisions and people execute them. Um, in government, and I guess in universities, I've never worked in the universities, um, it's not quite like that. You have to build consensus. You have to have, 
You have to get others to see things your way. You have to get things to work. I used to say taking taking a, a, a memorandum to cabinet forward was like organizing one of those, you know, races at a Sunday school picnic where everybody's got their legs tied <laughs> together and you've got to try to get them all moving in the same in the same kind of sequence, otherwise everyone falls over. It's, it's, it's a little bit like that in government. It's not intuitive for a business person who thinks they can go in and run it like a business. Well, running it like a business means that um, you, you just ignore what, you know, your colleagues, what stakeholders have to, have to say in many cases. Let's return to the leadership theme and talk about when you were growing up. Who are the leaders that you admired? Who, who did you read about? You know, so many people say, ah, I read Churchill. But who were your folks that you looked up to and thought, that's leadership? Well, I, I'd, put it, I'd put it this way. I, I grew up in, a, in an Irish-Canadian household where uh, we couldn't have dinner without having a discussion about politics. And my, my dad tended to support the liberals, and my mother tended to support the conservatives. I can remember they would sometimes even have both signs on the lawn. Uh, and if you didn't have a good argument over dinner, then what was the point of sitting together? <laughs> right. So that's what that. And I think a lot of Irish families are a little bit surprised like that. you didn't become an NDP in that house. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, it, 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 some people on both sides say I should have been the other way. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it but it I think the underlying theme in in those years, uh, even though my parents might disagree, um was that people in positions of political leadership deserved respect. This was public service. And uh, they would never have uh, said that the other side was not worthy of respect. So I grew up believing that public service was really an important thing. So my first awareness was uh, Diefenbaker coming to power. And Lester Pearson being awarded the Nobel Prize and then being the leader of the opposition and later being elected. Um, You know, in the days you'll never forget where you were and what you were doing. You know, I was writing my grade nine math exam uh, on the 22nd of November 1963 when JFK was assassinated. Uh, That was profoundly moving for me and for all of my contemporaries. I mean, that was, that was a big, big event. And then, you know, I went through high school and into university in, in the years of, of Vietnam. So it was a very politically active time. Um, the day in 1968 that Pierre Trudeau was chosen leader of the Federal Liberal Party in April 1968, was the 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 weekend uh, that Martin Luther King had been assassinated in Memphis, and cities across the United States were going up in flames, and we had this shiny new leader um, that was intellectual and cool, and and the U.S. was going up in in smoke, and it it just felt like the action was important. The loss of important leaders in the United States 
stood in stark contrast to the emergence of this brilliant new leader in Canada. And weren't we proud to be Canadians? Of course, that was just after Expo 67 and the Canadian Centennial as well. So it was to say I grew up in a political environment, even though nobody in my family ever ran for office, would be an understatement. So why did you run when that when that day came? You said, I think I'm going to do this. What, what motivated you to do Rocking it? Rocking chair test. I had this notion, Goldie, that you don't regret the things you did as much as you regret the things you didn't do. And there I was, a liberal sympathizer, I'd say, more than a liberal partisan. And Brian Mulroney had a massive majority. And I practiced law for 10 years. I had uh, I had a family. I had three children. They were, when I was first elected, nine, six, and one. And But I thought, you know, I don't want to be sitting in my rocking chair one day thinking, I always wanted to try that. I wonder what would have happened if I'd done it. And so, uh, you know, when the, you know, a massive conservative majority means that there are nominations that you can try to get. And that's, in Canadian politics, I'll tell you, by far the hardest thing is to get a nomination. Once you've got a nomination, well, then it's the national campaign that's going to carry you in or cause you to lose. So, uh, I thought, well, I'll throw my hat in the ring. And I worked hard and I sold memberships and all the things that you do. It's very, very grassroots. Got all my friends and colleagues to volunteer and surprise won a nomination. In that election, Ottawa South was a new constituency. I, I remember the, uh, the Financial Post ran a special segment on Ottawa South. And they featured it because... They thought it was a really interesting contest between an incumbent conservative, Barry Turner, and a union leader, very prominent union leader named John Fryer. They wrote the whole part, uh, article, didn't mention the liberal candidate. <laughs> so I felt pretty good on election day when Fryer didn't get 15% of the vote and I won. I had more than half the votes the first time out. But it was, to me, it was an opportunity to be in public service. So is uh, John Manley's life one that's been lived without regret? Oh, no. Are you kidding? I mean, I've got a whole, I've got lots of mistakes and lots of things. That's different. Regrets and mistakes are different. Any regrets? Regrets. Um, I wouldn't say major regrets, no. In some ways, I look back. It's not over, by the way. You know, no, it's, we're it's not a retrospective, <laughs> but it's not over. But 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 I don't look back on on my life experiences as being things that 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 I regret. I mean, there were opportunities. I mean, I had great opportunities, some of which I didn't follow. Uh, you know, I you know I was a law clerk to the Chief Justice of Canada. Um, I could have gone to Harvard or to Oxford or something, and uh, at that time in my life, I'd really had my fill of school and decided not to. Kind of wish I'd done one of those things, but I don't put that in the category of of great regrets. I've had a, a really wonderful experience. I have three kids who are all married and and in careers of their own. None have ever called me from the jail. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know. They'd uh, say you're a good dad? Uh, you'd have to ask them that. They'd, 
they would are probably, you a good dad? They would probably say their mom was a good dad because so many of those years I had to be absent, and uh, and Judith had to really keep things together. And she would they had dinner at home. They'd say where's where's dad tonight? And she'd say he's working for Canada. So, uh, you know, she deserves the credit for them. How important has her role been in your life? Well, she's a rock, right? You know, she's totally reliable. She has uh, foregone, I mean, she's a smart woman. But she held Um, it together. I mean, so many marriages fall apart when you enter public life, it feels like. But you guys are an example of getting it right. Your family's a solid family. You know, you and Judith are in great place. Well, what I tend to say is, well, you know, some people have lived together a long time but married less. In our case, we've been married for 45 years and we've lived together for 20. So maybe that's what works. Distance makes the heart grow fonder, <laughs> is it? Yeah. But, but, but you know, as I say, she, I mean, she's smart. She's got opinions. She knows lots of things. And she basically forwent all of those, all of the opportunities that she could have pursued. She was a feminist before I'd ever heard the word. But she took the back seat so that I could do lots of neat things, and I don't think she regrets it. Um, but I, I think that she had to. Uh, I mean, she had to set her expectations at a certain level in order to give our family uh, what she believed was uh, was essential. Not everybody makes the same choice in those circumstances, but in in our case. Uh, she stayed home, and uh, it, you know they say the, the notion that the, a parent needs to be around when the kids are little. I think that's probably true, but you know what? It's it's when they're getting into their preteens and teens, and those hours when they get home from school. That's when you find out what's really going on, and uh, I I think that I, she had, uh, you know that special intuition to know what was going on in each of their lives. And uh, it's not always easy with preteens and teens, um, but uh, we got through it all. Now, in politics, they often say that you need to have a counterbalance. And and in many cases, that is your spouse. It doesn't have to be. Uh, Prime ministers like to have what they call a kitchen cabinet, people that they can speak to and reach out to just to get a reality check. Did you have that? Well, to a great degree, I did. Yes, for sure, at home. And also, I spent a lot of time... Tell, tell us more about that, though. Did Judith ever say to you, John, I watched you today, and that was an embarrassing performance in question no, period. No, <laughs> she would never do that. She wouldn't do that. She'd never be negative. Um, but she would ask about things and how we were explaining them. And uh, But she was uh, she was always supportive. Now, we've talked about how politics often came at great sacrifice. But, you know, you weren't a politician 724. John Manley is still a person. How did you pass your time and how did you unwind from a really difficult day? What did you do? Well, in my, in my years in government, um, I actually took up running in a serious way. And, uh, not for office, you mean. But not for office. I ran too. for office, too. <laughs> but... but um, I had a staff member, Dan Wee-May, who was uh, a very avid I know, uh, runner and, uh, you know, university competitive and stuff and 
talked to him one day about it. He said, well, you know, you, let's get a good pair of running shoes and, and I'll give you some tips and things. I said, you know, I've always had this notion that I'd like to run a marathon. And I think he kind of rolled his eyes and said he got me this uh, website, halhigdon.com, and, and I followed it religiously. And, uh, and I celebrated turning 50 by running my first marathon here in Ottawa. And it, it turned out to be a really good thing to do as a, as a minister because it gave me time when I was running to think through things with nobody throwing anything at me. And, uh, and, and you know, the thing about uh, a minister's job is that you're never alone. There's always, even when you're in the car, somebody's driving you and there's staff with you and there are people that want things and you're your calendar is full from early morning till late at night. And when I got out for a run, I was alone. Now, there were times when I had to have security, but not often in Canada. Um, And over the course of those years, I ran five marathons. I ran some halves and 10Ks and uh, and and just had a great experience of it. It was uh, it, it it kept me uh, healthy. It gave me time to think, and uh, it was a release from the pressure from the the stress. You know, we'll come back to the hobbies because I want to ask about that. But you just said something I want to pick up on. You had to have security. Why? Uh, I had security when I was. Um, foreign minister and uh, there was a war going on in Afghanistan and I had security when I was deputy prime minister and somewhere on the road and I, I often thought it was Were there any threats against you? Uh, not Well they don't always they don't tell you if there are threats um, But when security arrived did you feel like wow? <laughs> uh, yes it was very intrusive and, and it was things like you know uh, please don't leave your house unless you call us in advance. They didn't want to have somebody parked there all the time, but they 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 didn't want me going out, you know, to buy for the groceries. <laughs> so for the run, they would uh, they'd have uh, an officer on a bicycle uh, that would sometimes two that would come along with me. And uh, yeah, I remember one time I was in Vancouver, and I was going to run the seawall, and uh, I had this RCMP officer. Uh, Marie Claire was her name. And uh, I said, look, you know, I'm going to have all my gear on, you know, hats, sunglasses. Nobody's going to recognize me. And, and you know, who, who's going to, who's going to, what are they going to do to me anyway? <laughs> and she said, oh, I'm really sorry, but I have to go with you. Besides, you just never know. So we're going down that first turn past, I think it's the West End into uh, uh, Stanley Park. And uh, somebody running the other way, and I'm totally geared up, right? Sunglasses, hat down. Guy running the other way says, good morning, Mr. Manley. And I hear <laughs> I hear the RCMP officer over my shoulder saying, see, see? I told you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, he didn't try to attack me. He just said good morning. <laughs> well, like one of the things about, you know, being a minister or being a CEO is it's it's – it's a job title. But then you come home and your dad, your husband, your grandpa. What was that like? And the reality check that comes when it says, you may be the minister, but I still need the garbage taken out. Well, actually, uh, we, what we did in our household is we referred to the minister in the third person. 
Um, because when I was at home, I was not the minister. The minister was somebody. The minister had a car. The minister had an office. The minister brought briefcases in. But I was not that. I was not that persona. I was. He's left me. at the door. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I mean, every Saturday morning, I made breakfast, and uh, yes, I, you know, I took the garbage out. That was one of my things until I could bribe my children to do it, <laughs> which is not easy to do. Cut the grass. <laughs> I'm not a very good gardener. I remember one time I was deputy prime minister. I'm standing out on my front lawn in, in Alta Vista in Ottawa, and it's a mess. I think we had some kind of white grub infestation or something, and I'm trying to figure it And my neighbor next door, Colin, comes over, and we're standing there looking at this scene of devastation. It looked like it was you know, had been a nuclear waste site or something. And he says, tell me, does the vice president of the United States have a lawn that looks like this? <laughs> I, I said, no, and he doesn't cut his own grass either. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> the I'm <neighbor>. sure. <laughs> you set a goal for running a marathon and you did it. Are there any more marathons in your future? Well, the next thing I did after the marathon was – because uh, I had an injury, which inhibited my running, which I, I regret a lot. But anyway, um, I climbed Kilimanjaro as a fundraiser for Care Canada, which is an international relief charity that I was involved with for many years. And uh, I loved it. It was an extraordinary experience. Um, the only regret that I had was I thought, you know, my kids really need to see this. So I started talking to them about, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And, of course, they all said they would. And it took a few years. And then my two girls um, said at one point, they said, look, you know, uh, it's a great idea, but our, our uh, biological clocks are ticking here. And if we don't do this soon, then we're going to run out of time because you can't take kids up on Kilimanjaro till they're, you know, 10 at least. So we found a time. It was over Christmas, uh, 2013, and uh, my three kids, two girls and a boy, and their partners, and two other friends, and me, uh, made uh, a group. And we went to Kilimanjaro, and we climbed to the summit. And it was the most extraordinary experience. I mean, you get your adult kids uh, for nine days with... Uh, no phones. There's the magic right there. <laughs> nothing to do but walk and talk and eat and sleep. Um, and in this remarkable environment, because you climb Kilimanjaro, you go through seven different distinct climate zones. It's everything from tropical rainforest uh, with monkeys hanging in the trees through to, you know, the... You know, heathery districts. What's like, your best uh, memory from there? Getting down. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was uh, the one of the. There were many great memories. I mean, we we just had a wonderful time together, and it was over Christmas. And our guiding company decided they they called me a few weeks in advance of the trip and said, D "Does your family celebrate Christmas?" I said, "Oh yeah, it's kind of a big deal in our household." So they made every effort. They had. You know, stockings on our tents on Christmas morning. They had one of the porters who was a, a very, very dark African. 
and a very, very thin man wearing a Santa outfit. Uh, they sang Christmas songs to us, the porters did. They made an exception and had a little bit of rum in the eggnog even for us. So they made a special event of it. So that was very memorable. The best of humanity at work. Um, because I was clearly the senior of the group, um, the, in Swahili, they called me Babu. Babu, yeah. Yeah. So, um, in fact, my, my girl's concerns proved warranted because within a year of our descent, I had two grandsons. So, in search of an appropriate grandfather name, they settled on Babu because it's uh, the <laughs> Kilimanjaro connection. So, so that's a, an ongoing legacy. Well, speaking of ongoing legacies, Babu, uh, to me, when you run a marathon and you climb Kilimanjaro and do things like that, it can really help you prepare for adversity in your life. Have you had adversity in your life and how did those experiences help you? Well, if I could take the year 2017 out of my life, the answer would be pretty much no. But... uh, but we can't. We can't. So we have a we have a cottage uh, in the Rideau Lakes, halfway between, roughly halfway between Kingston and Ottawa. And uh, it's not a long time family cottage. I couldn't afford a cottage when I was in public life, but after I was out, we we bought this place in uh, 2006, and it became a family place, a gathering place. We were there a lot. And uh, we went for uh, New Year's in 2016, uh, December 30th. Uh, we were up there. It was, you know, like many families, it wasn't, it wasn't a manly Christmas. It was the in-laws Christmas. So we had everybody for Christmas on, over New Year's. And December 30th, I went to bed and uh, was sound asleep when my son-in-law started calling out that there was a fire. So I got up and uh, saw that this was not anything that my little hand-operated ex- fire extinguisher was going to deal with. And I I called out to everybody, get dressed and get out and grab anything you think is valuable on the way. We had five minutes to get out uh, and the place was engulfed. Cold winter day? It was, uh, it was about minus 20 wow. outside. We had uh, six adults. One of the grandsons, two years old, and a dog. We got everybody out, grabbed a few things off the walls. Somebody even opened the refrigerator and grabbed the turkey, threw it out in the snow. And uh, and then we just watched it burn down. So that was December 30th, um, 2016. <clears throat> and then it takes a few months for the insurance company to do all their, <clears throat> excuse me, to do all of their evaluations. And uh, the day that they had given the clearance and the equipment was there to begin the demolition, the whole thing had to come down. All that was left was the foundation. The day the demolition began, my sister died. She was my older sister, my only sibling. Um, and she died of, uh, of liver disease that had been uh, caused by a condition called hemochromatosis, which is too much iron in the blood. So then I go to my doctor and says, I've been reading about this, hemochromatosis, hereditary effects, should I be tested? He said, eh, 
I don't think you've got hemochromatosis from your blood test, but I'll send you to a hematologist. I go, hematologist, he says, eh, same thing, but let's get an ultrasound and see what's going on in your liver. So uh, May 1st, 2017, I get an ultrasound. May 2nd, I called and said, your liver looks just fine. You've got a mass on your kidney. We've got to check it out. So it turns out I have two tumors on my left kidney. And uh, next thing I know, we're scheduling surgery to remove a kidney. Fortunately, kidneys uh, come in pairs and there's built-in redundancy. So I can function just fine with one, uh, getting lots of monitoring. Uh, but I'd say, uh, have I dealt with adversity? You know, that was not my finest year between the fire and the loss that, that entailed, my sister, uh, and, uh, and, and the cancer diagnosis. Um, that's not my best year. Well, they say adversity builds character, and it's clear that that's happened. You know, I'm, I'm still here, and I have a whole enhanced appreciation for good health that uh, I wouldn't say I ever took it for granted, but I'd never been, I'd never was, I never was sick. I never even had symptoms from the cancer. Now, I had two, plenty big tumors, but so far I had no symptoms. So sickness is not something that I've ever been able to really compute for my myself, other than the odd, you know, cold or flu or something. So uh, it's a uh, it's not a bad experience to know what it's like to come out the other a, side, yeah, and to be in a hospital bed and to see what happens yeah. in the on the inside of our healthcare system. And I'll tell you, I know there's lots of griping, complaining, uh, and I think if you've got elective surgeries or other special treatments, it can take a long time. But when you've got something serious, oh man, our system is good. That's when it really works. As I like to say to my American friends. It was fast, it was efficient, it was very good, and the only thing I had to pay for was parking at the hospital. Now, that was not inconsequential, I might add, <laughs> but that's all I paid. Now, you've had an interesting perch and um, somewhat of a hybrid in the golf bag, if you will. You've, you've seen the political side, you're getting a line of sight into the business side. Uh, there's often a tension between our political folks and our business community. Are they really that different? You know, one of the things that I think that my political colleagues when I was there would not have appreciated as much as I've learned it to be the case is the degree to which our senior business leaders, members of the Business Council of Canada, really do want to see Canada succeed. Now, they, they all lead big businesses. They're all very competitive. Uh, they're all very well compensated, as everybody will know. But um, they are philanthropic. They are uh, community leaders. They give uh, time, which is something they generally don't have, to community and other causes. And they really do believe in Canada and in Canadian success. So I think one of the great things about serving at the Business Council has been um, – when we're advocating for good public policy that supports economic growth, um, it's always from the context of not how do we make a certain class of people rich. It's about how do we make Canada 
a better place for uh, for us and for our children and grandchildren. And, and that is uh, not an attitude that most political actors attribute to business leaders. They think that I think this is maybe unfair to some, but they tend to think that they are uh, self-centered and greedy. I've heard you describe the role that you played at the the business council as one of an interpreter of trying to help build a bridge between business and government. Um, what advice do you have for me as we go forward and how to continue to be that interpreter? You know, I think a good starting point is to say we're we're not we're not here to oppose government. Uh, we're here to work with government, and uh, I think that the that to be constructive is way more valuable than to be critical. Now, sometimes you have to be critical, and sometimes. They're really not listening. And sometimes uh, if you're not critical, they interpret your lack of criticism as acquiescence. So it's a, it's a bit of a tricky thing. But I think that our role has been uh, historically one of, of uh, uh, not just advocacy but, uh, but thought leadership because generally speaking, all Canadians – believe that they want to see our economy grow. They want to see good jobs. They want to see um, incomes rise. Uh, They want to alleviate poverty. They want to see good health. They want to see a clean environment. They want to see us um, play a constructive leadership role in the world. And those are things that business leaders and political leaders agree on. So we've got lots of common ground to work with. And I would focus on the common ground before I focused on the things on which we we find we must disagree. Do you have concerns about our economy? Do you have concerns about the rising deficits, debt? I mean, you were finance minister. You know, what I, what I worry about, when you look at our overall debt level in Canada uh, at the federal level, it's not worrisome. I, I don't think Under low interest rate environment, maybe not, but they're going no, the other direction. Low, it's a low interest rate, but also our, our debt as a percentage of our GDP isn't bad. It's, no, it's but, but way who talks better. like that, John, at the dinner table? But, do you think well, anybody exactly. talks like that? Uh, well, well, hold on. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I think that there are that, – that's sort of what the government says to us, right? So don't worry. Be happy. But what worries me is that – Over the last uh, number of years, we have seen deficits uh, growing way faster than the economy is growing. I've seen that movie. And then, as you say, interest rates start to rise. And, oh, the low-cost debt suddenly is becoming more expensive. And, oh, by the way, people like getting all those goodies. And all of a sudden, we're in a situation where the economy slows for global, it could be global reasons, and growth slows, and government revenues slow, but the expenditure base remains the same. In fact, it grows because of employment insurance benefits and other, other offsets. So suddenly what was a manageable deficit and a relatively low debt is growing exponentially and really fast. And it's really hard to do anything about it. When the Great Recession hit in uh, 2008, 
the federal government in Canada had run 12 consecutive surpluses. We were a paradigm of virtue in fiscal terms. So the Canadian government, and and I give uh, the Harper government credit for this, opened the taps. Our stimulus in Canada in absolute numbers, not relative numbers, was the fourth largest in the world, like our military was after World War II. It was big. We spent a lot of money. And uh, we basically, we didn't come out unscathed, uh, but we came out a lot better than most of the world. Our, Our highly regulated financial institutions, none of them required bailout. Uh, by the government. No federal money flowed to them. It flowed to infrastructure and other things. Um, uh, Central banks did what they did. Most of them, this gets a little technical, most of them expanded their balance sheets by doing something called quantitative easing. Didn't do it in Canada. Didn't need to. Lower the interest rates, but the Bank of Canada wasn't out buying government debt or buying corporate debt as other central banks, including the Federal Reserve, were doing. We came through that really well. Why? Because we'd run 12 surpluses in good times so that we had our cupboards full when bad times came. What are we doing now? We're in good times and we're, and we're pouring the money out the door. So I just think that's a prescription for disaster. And, the, and whoever's in government, when the turn comes, because it will come, you know, it, they're going to have some challenging things to decide. You know, something I, I worry about when you when people talk about the economy and they say highest ever or lowest ever, I figure it's time to run for the hills <laughs> because you know what? Trees do not grow to the sky. Well, speaking of running for the hills, as we wind up, I thought I'd play a little word game with you. I'm going to give you one word and you're going to give me the first word that comes to mind. Trump. Tower. Putin. Poison. China. Opportunity. Gretchen. Pragmatism. Harper. Ideology. Social media. Opportunity. Judith. I love her. (laughs) That's three words. (laughs) How about Canada? I love Canada. You know, we we all focus on what, you know, especially in the jobs that I've had and that you're entering, you know, what can we do better? So sometimes that sounds like criticisms. But, uh, you know, there's nobody living here uh, that was either born here or that immigrated here that didn't win the lottery. This is still, um, you know, the greatest place on earth. on earth. Well, you've made it a better country through your service, John, and I know there's more that lies ahead for you. I can't tell you what a, a privilege and an honor uh, it is to try and fill your shoes. You're leaving behind a great organization with a great team and a really solid membership, and I think you'll be happy to know that we're all going to work very hard to keep Canada strong. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to John Manley for being my guest on this episode of Speaking of Business. Subscribe now for more conversations with Canada's top innovators, entrepreneurs, and business leaders. Search Speaking of Business wherever you find podcasts 
or visit speakingofbiz.ca to join our email list and follow us on social media. Until next time, I'm Goldie Hyder. <laughs>